0: welcome to the rob at desk podcast i'm rob blasey today i talked to bill connerly writer for forbes and economist we talked about leadership and organizations having liberals and conservatives and how they can complement each other plus we talked about the electrical vehicle industry and much much more take a listen and thanks for listening Mr. Bill Connerly, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Happy to be here.
0: So, Bill, I actually uh, ran into your work when uh, doing some homework for a project, and I used one of your uh, articles from Forbes as a source for one of my papers, so thank you for helping me get my homework done.
1: (laughs) What wonderful to be uh, of help.
0: So, yeah, no, I think we got a solid B on the paper, so we're good. (laughs) We did. (laughs) Of course, I mean, you were part of it now, so give credit to where credit's due. If you thought we should have gotten an A, I can, I'm not sure what I can do there for you. That's, uh, I would call that user error.
1: <laughs> well, I'll take the B. Okay, yeah. So
0: they clearly probably didn't judge, grade the paper. Maybe I didn't APA source your article correctly because would knock me down probably. So, but uh, it was the article that you wrote back in 2018, if you can remember it, we'll dust it off, as with, uh, Where organizations and leadership, or or need both liberals and conservatives. Oh
1: yeah, right.
0: With the Jordan Peterson reference. Yes. So, first, so help me out. How did you come up with that conclusion? And and with the conservatives, conservatives and liberals needed in both to run an organization well.
1: Well. I heard an evolutionary psychologist speaking, I've forgotten her name, but she told a little story. She said, imagine back when we were hunter-gatherers that a group of people found a new mushroom that they had never seen before. What would be the response? Well, somebody, we're just imagining, somebody would say, oh, you know, we're hungry, maybe this is nutritious and maybe it even tastes good. But somebody else in the group may very well say, oh, this is not our traditional food. We need to be very nervous about it. And today in everyday life and in the business world, we see some people who, uh, who relish new, different change and other people who are not comfortable with new, different. Uh, and I think that we have evolved that such that some of us are open to 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 change wild and crazy and others like the tried and the true and it turns out that the the tribes that had both of those voices present thrived which is why those characteristics continue in our personalities today and if there had been a tribe where everybody was open to new things well, they ate too many poisonous mushrooms and if there were <laughs> another tribe that was um averse to anything different they did not survive the ice age Does so there... we humans need a little bit of both and it maybe is such that uh it's hard for one person i mean as an individual i can understand both of those characteristics but i do lean more to one than the other And it's probably useful in an organization for both sides to have a strong advocate, but among people who can see both sides of the story. Does that make sense
0: to you? No, absolutely. Is there an organization that you can kind of point to, to sort of give an example where you can see that?
1: Well, you know, uh, you're not going to see it, but let me tell you, I was in uh, Moscow uh, speaking for one of the Russian um, uh, MBA programs and I ended up being on a panel with one of the Russian oligarchs. Uh, you know, there was a generation of people when communism was collapsing who uh, seized—well, I shouldn't say seized—they bought control of a major industry. And this guy was had an estimated net worth of like two and a half billion dollars, billion Ooh. with a B. Uh, and um, uh, I ran this idea by him. He himself is a wild and crazy person. And he smiles and he says, my partner, he is by the rules. He wants to you know, shave a quarter of a percent off our operating costs every quarter. And I have big visions. And he said, it is wonderful. It works so well. We argue with each other, we fight, but the organization does really well. So that's, I think, uh, proof of the pudding. And in many, many companies, you'll see um, uh, those voices the challenge is that many of us and I I've, I've been guilty of this myself many of us tend to hire people who are like ourselves and if you hire somebody like yourself then you don't get that that yin and yang you know that uh differing uh uh vision
0: no i can even see that in relationships where my wife and i where we're newly married we're older but we're newly married and uh, we joke around where uh, I have the gift of grace and patience, and she has a spiritual gift of freaking out. So <laughs> we joke that like hope like, but she's good at worrying about things that I probably should worry about, and I'm good at calming her down about things she doesn't need to worry about. So, and so we joke about when we, if we have kids, like hopefully there's a good mix. Like there's things that she'll be good at with them, and hopefully things I'll be good with them at that we bring out a well-rounded human yeah. being.
1: Well, you know, I don't give a relationship advice, but I've raised two kids, and I think it's really nice to have two parents, uh, especially when one gets angry, the other can step in and say, "Hey, Bill, why don't you go out to the workshop for a few minutes and let me handle this problem?"
0: Right. Well, we joke around that she's gonna come home from work and or something, and she's gonna be like, "This place is a disaster. I'm going to the bed. I'm going to the bedroom. I'll be back in two hours. It better be cleaned up." And I'm gonna lean <laughs> and I'm gonna lean over to our kid, going. We have an hour and forty-five minutes before we have to start cleaning up. (laughs) So, so, but um, you've been writing for Forbes for how long now? By the way, Uh, nearly ten years. What got you?
1: And I do five articles a month uh, for them.
0: Nice. What got you? What got you into the writing, and especially then for Forbes as well?
1: Well, uh, this may be uh, a boring story for many of your people, but a good buddy of mine. Uh, Patrick Galvin, who's a specialist on building relationships for business, suggested that I try a blog as a way to uh, promote myself, uh, let the world know of my knowledge and talent. I started writing a blog. I enjoyed it. It helped me, the process of writing helped me organize my thoughts and things that I had been casually saying when I was putting... um, uh ink to paper i started checking verifying you know you write a sentence and then you double check do, do you, are there really facts to support this and my economic analysis became better as i was writing more and after i'd been doing that blog for a few years forbes reached out to me and said hey how would you like to publish on our platform and I went from getting you know hundreds of page views to thousands, or in some cases hundreds of thousands of page views. So it's been a good relationship.
0: Well, no, that's great. Just the, the starting off of something and watching it, watching success is always fun to see. That.
1: Yeah, it's a discipline to to write regularly, and I have friends who would like to but don't quite do it, and people who are thinking about it. Uh, I think the process of writing really helps. Um people organize their thoughts and make sure they're right and I would recommend people contemplating it to just do it um, and start with 20 minutes a day and it doesn't make much difference uh, at first where you publish it. Um, there are plenty of free sites you know medium and that kind of thing uh, but just just do the writing.
0: No absolutely it's actually similar advice. I have friends that write music and that's they say it's like a muscle you have to keep using it and you have to keep practicing yeah. No, very good. So then, a couple of your other stories you've written have uh, caught my eye, and it's uh, the the one that more recently cities uh, are will be fragile moving forward. You just uh, this is one you just released on Forbes in the last week or so.
1: That's right. So let me tell you the story behind that. Yeah, I. Uh, I live in the Portland, Oregon metropolitan area, which has had a number of riots. We have high housing costs. We have a homelessness problem. And I wrote an article a month or two ago uh, called Death of a City, the Portland Story, question mark. Mm -hmm. And that really took off 117,000 page views. Oh, wow. And it got... Got a lot of controversy, uh, both uh, nationwide and especially here in the Portland metropolitan area. And uh, a lot of a lot of hate came out of this. And, uh, you know, I I don't hate people who disagree with me, but there are a lot of folks who do. Mm But what I realized, uh, and and the mayor actually was asked in a new press conference, "Have you read Bill Connerly's article?" Huh. And uh, uh, Portland's mayor Ted Wheeler said, "I've read it, and he's wrong." So uh, take take everything I say <laughs> with a grain of salt, because I have officially been declared wrong. Yeah. But I, when I looked back at it, I thought that the area I maybe omitted was emphasis on how competitive cities are going to be in the future. Uh, It used to be that, uh, you're in the Denver area, is that right? Yes, sir. Right, so Denver had a solid base supporting the mining industry in the mountains, plus some of the the agriculture there. Uh, And I'm in Portland where we were shipping uh, timber down to the burgeoning California economy. Uh, And it used to be that you could look at a city and say, oh, this city is here because uh, some part of geography or natural resources. But today, so much work can be done anywhere. And if work can be done anywhere, cities will thrive where people want to live. It's not that people have to move to a particular city to get a job. People will decide where they wanna live and the jobs will follow the people. And uh, that means that uh, cities are competing with each other and having a river um, is not going to be the great advantage that it used to be. Uh, Having good governance, I think, and a combination of policies that lead to affordable housing. I mean, truly affordable housing, not not government subsidized housing, but housing that people can afford, a good transportation system, amenities, and a sense of safety, and also low taxes. So I think that cities are going to be very competitive one with another. And it used to be a competition for who can bag the big elephant, you know, get a big factory. Uh, It's not going to be hunting for factories anymore. It's going to be hunting to be the kind of place where people want to live.
0: No, that's absolutely. It's you, you had a interesting article relating to that too. Then with the uh, the housing boom, where you think it's going to end in twenty twenty one.
1: I yeah, I uh, I think that we are in um, somewhat of a temporary boom, and what happened is with the pandemic, we had two things. One is people changing their preference. And living close in to the office uh, was less advantageous if right. you're not going into the office, uh, living close to bars and restaurants and coffee shops, less of a value if you cannot go to bars, and restaurants and coffee shops. And at the same time, we had record low mortgage interest rates. Oh, yeah. So um, so some people changed their mind about whether they wanted to live in a close in apartment or wanted a single family home in the suburbs. And other people whose mind had always been set on um, a home in a single family home in the suburbs, they looked at those mortgage rates and they said, uh, hey, now we can afford our house. So those two things led to a surge in um, demand for single family houses. Prices went up. The number of listings for sale is way down relative to the sales. But I think a lot of this is borrowing from the future. Uh, many of the people buying now, we're going to buy in a year or two, uh, but they accelerated their move. So I don't think- That's what my wife like, and I did. Uh, I, let's say again?
0: That's what my wife and I did. Well, the costs in Denver are going up and we just realized in about a year, or year and a half or two years, we might not be able to afford what we want out here.
1: Right. Right. Yep. Uh, so I don't think that housing prices are going to go down, but I think the rapid- price appreciation we saw in 2020 and we're seeing in 2021 is going to taper off Uh so if if you if you love the house buy it if you think it's a great investment uh i'd be a little cautious
0: yeah no our goal our goal is to be the 25 year house so not yeah you know stuff like that no so wouldn't you because you're a you look at leadership strategy and and the economy overall. would you say in your writing is that fair to say
1: yeah, I, I, the way I put it is I connect the dots between the economy and business decisions. So every business leader has a to-do list, a set of priorities. And uh, with my clients, I uh, talk about the changes in the economy and what that means for um, an executive's to-do list. Uh, right now, when people ask me about the 10-year outlook, I talk about tight labor markets. People ask me about a 12-month outlook. I talk about being ready for more sales because I think the economy is really taking off right now. There are other times where I've talked to people about making sure they have access to financing. So the the business challenges change with the economy, and I do a little forecasting, but mostly I try to help executives understand how the changes impact their own situation.
0: Yeah, because you... You made an interesting uh, point in the with uh, the job market one where there's just people are having less kids, so there'll be a more demand on the job market. Like, will there be enough people to fill the jobs? I might not be saying that as eloquently as you said it, but I thought that was an interesting correlation. And also, then would that would also down the road impact housing as well?
1: Yeah, Uh, you know the the one of the biggest factors of Changes in the economy has been the baby boom and I'm a baby boomer myself and, you know, it's not that I'm just sort of saying, hey, we're the greatest, but um, it, it's a huge bulge in the population and baby boomers are retiring now some earlier, some later and um, the baby boom actually lasted quite a number of years. So it doesn't happen all at once. Um, the millennials are the children of the baby boomers and they're already. In their working age years, going forward from say 2020 to 2030, oh, that decade-long period, um, most of the baby boomers will have left the workforce. Uh, the millennials are already there, and the generation after the millennials is relatively small. And the result is we'll have the lowest growth of the working-age population since the Civil War. Really, the lowest. The lowest growth of the working age population since the civil war and in the civil war, of course, we were killing working age people right, so I think the defining challenge for the next decade for businesses is. uh, How are you going to find people Uh, you need to retain good workers and you need to be good at at uh, recruiting new workers and those. Two things actually work well together. The the businesses that have the happiest workers and the best retention find it easier to recruit. So, um, from an HR perspective, uh, yeah, uh, retention is a huge issue.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then, what do you think? Then, do you look globally then too? Like, where there companies looking more and more for more economic workforce in other countries, especially say in the tech world
1: right that's a mix of things Uh, most of the developed countries had a baby boom like ours though the timing and magnitude is different and I have not studied closely the demographics of like China and India uh, Pakistan various um, and, and the Philippines various outsourcing possibilities but there's certainly attention more attention to overseas outsourcing and um, good opportunities, but plenty of horror stories as well. Oh, absolutely! I think that companies, go ahead.
0: I can say, yeah, I agree with the, both sides of that. With good and it's yeah, there's been great stories and horror yeah. stories.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I was uh, when I was writing my first book, uh, Bizonomics. Um, there was an, a, a very data-intensive um, uh, activity I wanted to do in order to distill. Um, in easy to understand format, a lot of complicated data and I, I connected with a graduate student in economics in India, uh, I hired him uh, and I think I was paying him $3 an hour, uh, which sounded like a good deal to me. And I gave him a set of instructions and then I stopped hearing from him. I mean, I just did not get a reply from an email. And I kind of chalked that up to experience. I'd paid him like a hundred dollars in advance. So it wasn't a big loss to me. Uh, But I started working through my own set of instructions, doing it myself. And I found that step three, um, my directions did not work. It was impossible to do what I had asked him to do. And if i had had somebody down the hall from me doing this, the person would have come in and said, Hey, Bill, maybe I don't get it, but. Step three doesn't seem to work, huh. but, but we have a person in a different culture who doesn't know me. He's probably embarrassed that he cannot get it to work, so he just went dark. Uh, so that's, huh. that's my downside of uh, uh, offshoring uh, repetitive tasks.
0: No, I can, I can understand that. So You talked about where you connect the dots and what you see in the economy to help uh, business leaders. What dots do you look for? Oh, (laughs) well, you know, there's a lot of,
1: um, I get many questions that I think of as cocktail party conversation, the sort of thing that somebody would ask that, uh, you know, they're asking about Federal Reserve policy or what do I think Congress ought to do with this um, uh, stimulus bill. And I look at somebody who's running a company and I'm saying, That is about the stupidest question to ask, because it's not actionable. You know, what I think Congress ought to do uh, is totally irrelevant unless I'm talking to a congressman. Right. Uh, And what the Fed should do, you know, if, um, uh, if Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, were to call me up, I'd tell him what the Fed should do. But if you're running a company and you're trying to uh, sort of survive in difficult situations, don't ask me about the Fed or, or Congress. <laughs> uh, ask me, hey, is business gonna be better? Um, and uh, ask me about whatever materials you buy, whether it's labor, labor or commodities or real estate, ask me about uh, the market there, ask me about competitive challenges, globalization. You know, all of th- That's what I really like to do uh, and uh, talking politics is what I have to do in order to get people's attention.
0: No, it makes sense. So then I'm going to ask you about a field, and if you know about it, great. If not, I'm just going to take a shot at it because the world I'm starting to play in plane is with uh, electrical vehicles, chargers, and that world. What have you what have you seen in that world? Everyone says it's a growth industry, but my concern is it seems like everybody's going for that growth industry.
1: Yeah, um, th- things that are obviously growth industries attract a lot of people. Uh, I was skeptical at first, but I am becoming convinced that uh, the, the the price tags on batteries are going way down. Not my specialty, but uh, I'm inclined to be sympathetic to that. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And if this let me just take a guess here i'm guessing there's room for a lot more players than we currently have if what i've read about falling prices is true then yeah there's a lot of there's a big crowd in there but there should be room for an even bigger crowd
0: yeah no there's so many more vehicles coming out from more manufacturers that are electrically charged or driven however you want to phrase it there that are ev vehicles is yeah it's but
1: but but Many of those are driven by subsidies right now. Yes. And I'm always hesitant of an industry driven by subsidies. But um, I think it was the Wall Street Journal uh, a few weeks ago had a lengthy article about uh, how costs are changing for batteries. And if they're right on that, then um, EVs will stand on their own without subsidies. And if that's the case, uh, then yeah, I think we're going to have a big change.
0: Yeah, because the concern I've had was when you look at it with everybody trying to go into that market, even like where states and countries are pushing towards EV, which I have no problem with, but then you go, is there enough natural resources that to keep the cost down, where there's such a demand for like lithium and cobalt and some of these minerals that you need for these batteries for the vehicles, it's like, is, are they going to be able to keep the costs down, with, like you said, without subsidies? So,
1: Right, yeah, yeah, Th- that's a good question. Yeah. Um, it's going to happen over a long period of time, you know, a couple yeah. of decades. And that means that we have time to build the recharging stations, um, power plants, whether they're, you know, gas turbines or whether they're solar, uh, we'll have time to, to build the capacity. And I think that many, many of the skeptics uh, don't understand just how, uh, how the economy will adjust uh, if there's demand for something, there are going to be a bunch of entrepreneurs going in saying, oh, you need more cobalt? We'll find some cobalt. You know, you need more um, uh, electricity generation, we'll get you more electricity generation.
0: Yeah, no, what I find with a lot of people in this industry, like not even in the industry, but when, you, when I talk about it, what they're interested in is like they'll put the solar panels on the roof, maybe a battery pack in their garage, and they go, I never need to go to a gas station again. And the savings maybe just from the fuel, but I'm not buying as many big gulps or scratchers, or, you know, there's sa- <laughs> savings in there where you just go, oh, not only did my, you know, savings account get a little bit healthier, but so did my uh, caloric intake.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, could be. Well, um, last year, maybe it was two years ago, I spoke to a group of convenience store owners. I do a lot of speaking oh, yeah? around the country. On the economic outlook. And, uh, you know, EV electric vehicles are something that's on their radar screen as a concern uh, because um, people will be recharging at home. Uh, I think the, the truck stop stuff will probably be good for uh, EVs will be good for them because you'll come in for a half hour rather than a five minute um, Uh, time at the gas pump. So maybe there'll be um, uh, better uh, culinary offerings. In fact, that's one of the things that surprised me is how much the convenience store operators are thinking, let's upgrade from just having a bunch of um, hot dogs on those little spinners to having some real food.
0: No, that's actually an interesting, I'm always interested in like, what are the consequences and consequences aren't always bad but like the natural reactions maybe might be the better word for it when things change like that because you know there you go everyone wants to have solar panels or a way to be their own power plant to fuel their vehicle and then how much of that strain then maybe goes off the grid but when there's now more demand on the grid in other areas for people to charge these batteries how you know who pays for that i guess if
1: yeah, and grid reliability is an issue I think we're going to be talking a lot more about. The, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of coal-fired power plants, but taking coal offline, um, coal is a very reliable way to produce electricity 24 hours a day, whether the sun is shining, whether the wind is blowing. Yep. And um, taking the coal plants offline uh, presents a lot of challenges and uh some of our decisions i think are being made uh by people who are unwilling to consider that there are downsides to every decision there are trade-offs all the time and uh you know we can have a healthy grid without coal but you can't just turn off the coal plants and have the healthy grid you've got to give a lot of thought to it
0: no absolutely And i've had people talk about that and and part of the industry where i work is you know with diesel generators and the fuel tanks that hold it they go we got to get away from fossil fuels but they don't realize that those diesel generators are hooked up to hospitals and critical infrastructure that if they needed that power if you know one of your loved ones is in the hospital and the grid goes down even though they may be hooked up to different segments of it would you you know would you want to rely on the power that's powering equipment at a hospital to a tried and true generator hooked up to diesel versus a battery pack that you know who knows how long that may take to recharge if it takes a while to get more fuel in there.
1: Right. Uh, we had, um, a severe storm last month here in, um, Oregon and, uh, my house was without power for four days. Oh wow. And it was very tempting to, um, uh, get a generator. Of course there were no generators to be had oh, right. after the storm hit, but, Uh, When the electricity service is less reliable, more and more people are going to buy generators, whether for a home or an office, a manufacturing facility. And, um, you know, if you want to get away from fossil fuel, you need reliable electricity, not just occasional electricity.
0: No, absolutely. Bill, this has been an absolute pleasure. If people want to get a hold of you, how would they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, the best way to do it is to ask Google um, about Bill Connerly. Uh, Connerly is spelled with one N, -N C-O-N-E-R-L-Y, but Google is pretty good about misspellings. Uh, You'll find my website, connerlyconsulting.com. You can go to forbes.com and search for my name to find my articles. And you can also go to YouTube. I've got a YouTube channel and just keep uh, adding uh, Bill Connerly to your search terms
0: absolutely and then did i miss anything what is is there anything you want to say to, did i miss anything before i let you go
1: yeah let me just say you know i mentioned that i think inflation is coming but the united states has been through a lot of challenges and i i like to read history and you know from the first people landing on our shores the revolution the civil war dealing with world wars the spanish flu and we've overcome those. As an economist, I'm really optimistic about our human ability to make this a better place to live and to have closer connections. Economics is not just about money, but money certainly uh, solves a lot of problems. I think that we have a great future ahead of us in America and in the world, and that's probably the best lesson I can offer.
0: No, Bill, I really appreciate that. When you do your speaking tours, are you getting out there much? Are you seeing, like, because you talked about with uh, trade shows coming back? And I, by the way, I'm gonna we're gonna if you got an extra minute here too, I'd like to keep going. Go
1: ahead.
0: Because uh, you you, I read one of your more recent articles about trade shows coming back, and you used the bicycle analogy, and I thought it was. A, I appreciate the way you think because you think of it more than just like, oh, look, trade shows aren't going on and sales are still the same, and. But then you go. But everyone's not doing trade shows. It's not like Company A and B decided not to do them this year, and everybody else did. But no one's doing. Them. Right.
1: Right. And you know, even if everybody else were going to trade shows, people can coast. Uh, so that's the bicycle analogy. You know, you built up a good bit of steam. You coast for a little bit, catch your breath, and you don't lose much ground. But if your competitor keeps pedaling, he pulls out a little bit ahead of you. And then if your competitor really starts pushing uh, and you're still coasting, uh, man, you're in trouble. So uh, having a year without a lot of face-to-face marketing, yeah, people are getting by just fine. Uh, Two or three years, you're gonna be losing market share. So I would say to to businesses, whether you do your marketing through trade shows or direct mail or face-to-face, whatever, uh, you need to be uh, dialing up your game.
0: No, absolutely. And then are you seeing more and more, because with your speaking engagements, are they starting to, at least the requests coming in more, or like the idea of getting back on the road in the near future look more reasonable?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely more interest, but people are still like, well, we don't know if it's going to be virtual. We don't know if it's going to be live. Um, and that's a real challenge, but I've had one dose of the vaccine. I'm, uh, three weeks away from my second dose and, uh, uh, I'll be ready to travel anywhere as soon as people are ready to start having meetings.
0: Right now. I've heard more and more, uh, sales reps saying that their companies are letting them travel, especially once they get the vaccine now, where they're sort of opening the doors again and opening those opportunities where it's now at least you can hear the excitement when you talk to people like, Hey, we'll be in your office here sooner rather than later. At least there's a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, well, I was just talking to a, um, uh, a business owner who said that his, uh, his company's travel costs went way down and he likes that. And uh, it turns out that uh, people don't have to jump on a plane quite as much as they used to. Uh, Zoom is a partial substitute. And I think that uh, when we get back to uh, feeling a little bit more normal, that there will be less business travel, but it'll still occur because you need a little bit of face-to-face. But I knew people who would, you know, jump on a plane to Chicago at the drop of a hat. Um, you know, four hours on the plane each way and a hotel night. And uh, if you can do that in a one-hour Zoom call, you've just saved a day plus an airplane ticket.
0: No, absolutely, and not to mention the wear and tear of just traveling. Yeah, yeah. So No. Well, Bill, if you ever make it out to Denver for a speaking engagement, let me know. I'd love to come see you.
1: Wonderful. Good chatting with you.
0: All right, Bill. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.